Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you here this morning. I have had an incident this morning. I cannot find my glasses. And um, I nearly was going to not be here in time to get dressed for baptism looking for them. I've turned them upside down. Now, I know somebody's thinking, Brother Matt, you're approaching 40. You should be smart enough to have more than one pair of glasses. Well, I had three, but my youngest daughter tore up the third pair, and my son tore up the second pair. So prayers for the first pair, wherever they may be. And uh, so hopefully... I'm driving to the Southern Baptist Convention later today. Hopefully we can find them before I start driving on the road. <laughs> but I would invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to 2 Chronicles today. 2 Chronicles, as we continue in our series on Habakkuk. 2 Chronicles. I know, thinking, Brother Matt, I thought we were in Habakkuk. We still are. But 2 Chronicles is going to give us a little bit more context of why things are the way they are that we looked at in Habakkuk last week. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. The title of the message this morning is, Could We Have Avoided Getting here. Last week, we talked about the decline of the kingdom, the decline of Israel and Judah, the decline of civilization, so to speak. And this is Habakkuk's plight. He's looking out at the world, his world, that is seemingly gone mad and is falling apart. And he's asking God, why are things the way they are? Why has it gotten so bad? And as you look out in Christian history, not just Christian history, but specifically Western history in our own situation, is that can civilizational decline be avoided? Is it just the way of civilization to decline over time? I mean, certainly there's technological advancement and things like that, but is, is decline ultimately inevitable? For instance, do all kingdoms and empires and cities and eventually go the way of ancient Rome and just morph into something else? Well, in looking at this story, I want to address this question. Is the decline of civilized peoples inevitable? And I want us to look at the great reformer in the kingdom of Judah. This is the King Josiah. King Josiah, if you'll put the graphic back on the screen from last week. Um, I've got my pointer down here. Just as a reminder of where we are, if we'll look on this screen up here, hopefully it's a little easier to see this week, but right there is King Josiah, and he is the grandson of, remember, wicked King Manasseh, who was the son of godly King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was the first reformer and brought great religious and moral reform into the kingdom of Judah. Remember, their neighbors to the north, the northern kingdom, all had many evil kings that led the kingdom into idolatry and sin. But right here, Hezekiah was a reformer. He reestablished worship in the temple. He tore down the high places. He also reestablished the Passover and other feasts as well.
Ammon, he only served for two years. It was a very short kingship. And then Josiah came and brought out great religious reform, destroying all of the idols, destroying all of the idolatry. But upon Josiah's death, these four kings, Jehoaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, just for information, because you may be curious, I know it's, it's hard to see this because it's far away. Jehoaz is the son of Josiah. Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. Jehoiachin is the son of Jehoiakim. And then Zedekiah is also the son of Josiah. So all of these last four kings that undid all of their fathers and their grandfathers' reforms is what led the kingdom into ultimate ruin. Now, Hezekiah, not Hezekiah, but Habakkuk, remember, is born right here in the kingdom reign of Josiah. And Josiah has become king after his father Ammon. But remember, Ammon was only king for two years. So Josiah is really serving as king just behind the disastrous rule of King Manasseh. And this is where we're going to pick up our story today. Let's look down in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father, David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, this would be when he's only 16 years old. Don't tell me God doesn't use teenagers. He began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over their graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, I know when you read that, you think, my goodness, how could God be using such a man? It sounds like he's going around killing priests and beating people in, or beating these idols into oblivion and all of these things. Keep in mind, all of these priests would have participated in human sacrifice. These were priests that would have participated in the worship of child sacrifice. Much blood had been spilt by the hands of these wicked men. And Josiah coming and cleansing the land, while it sounds harsh to us that he would do this, that he would kill the priests and then burn their bones on the altar, does, the question is, does the punishment fit the crime that think about it the priest would have killed baby after baby after baby and sacrificed and burned them on the altar and Josiah flips it 
and says, you won't do this anymore. As you have done to so many, now we will do to you. It's, it's hard to think about. It's grisly. But this is how wicked, this is how godless the kingdom of Judah had become. And Josiah is this great reformer who has come. So I want to talk a little bit about civilization first. First is this. A civilization is a people with a shared culture doing life together. A civilization is a shared a people with a shared culture doing life together. Now, when we think of civilization, what civilization are we a part of? We are, in the big sense here in America, a part of Western civilization. The, the history, or, or at least most of us, most of us and the way our government functions, the history of how um, our world works and how our country occupies, operates is rooted in European style and European governance and also though we can think of civilization in this way some people would say well I'm just an American but then even more specific we would identify ourselves not just Americans somebody might say well that's not enough I'm not an American I'm a southerner or I'm a northerner or I'm a Midwesterner, or I'm a New Englander, or I'm on the West Coast, or I'm from the islands, or whatever. We might nuance it even more. Of course, we would begin with the most important and just say we're from the South. But, but we might even nuance it more than that. We'd say, but you know, I'm not just from the South. I'm from Mississippi. I'm a Mississippian. But you might want to nuance it and you're like, well, Mississippi's a big state. I'm from Northeast Mississippi. I'm not just Mississippi, but Northeast Mississippi. Each time, culture is getting a little more defined and refined to something very narrow. I was talking to a man yesterday at a wedding, and he was, uh, went to his first church to pastor. He grew up in North Mississippi, and now he's pastoring in South Mississippi down in Pike County. And I, I said, how's it going? He said, well, I love it. He said, but you know what? People down there are very different than they are up here. And that's in the same state. That's how refined cultures can be. And then we could even like nuance it even more, not just northeast Mississippi, but Lee County or Tupelo. Once you get down, and then sometimes even within Tupelo, we say, well, listen, I'm from South Tupelo. I'm from West Tupelo, or I live downtown, and each time you say something, it communicates something about civilized culture. It gets more and more refined, and it is a group of people that have an agreed, an unspoken agreed, but it is a shared culture of doing life together. Now, in the big sense, going back, we think of ourselves as Americans. Um, in the ancient world, people didn't so much do that. In the ancient world, there was this thing called the city-state. People thought of themselves as their city, as being their culture. In the ancient world, most of the uh, cities even had kings themselves. They were not a part of an empire. And these city-states would have been highly refined beacons of specific culture. And this actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 4 
verses 17 through 22. After Cain kills Abel, he goes out from the presence of the Lord from the land of Eden, and he does something. Listen to this. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, by the way, this word city here is the same word, or in Hebrew it's ear, the same word city here, it means a walled village, a walled town. So when Cain built a city, he's putting walls around a civilization. So he built a city, and he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Yobald. He was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the father's, uh, father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Nama. Now, here you're thinking this is just a genealogy. But this is really cool. We get to really see the birth of civilization here. First, let's begin by looking here at uh, Ada's son. Ada Yubal was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Think music and culture. Zillah bore Tublocane, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Think tools, weapons of war, things that are used inside the city. And then finally, the sister of Tublocane was Nema, which just means beautiful. In a sense, we see here the birthplace of human civilization in the city of Cain. It is a shared life together where they are bringing forth the arts and music. They, first, they got their walls. They're bringing forth arts and music. They're bringing forth metallurgy, which is the foraging of, the forging of metal instruments for war and tools and all of these things, and also bringing forth beauty as well. It's the idea that there is something beautiful about the city in the eyes of humans. And this idea is carried from Genesis 4 forward throughout the rest of the Scripture that humanity views their cities as crown jewels of culture, so to speak. But as we know... Cultures and cities have been rising and falling from the beginning. Civilizations have been rising and falling since the beginning, following a bell curve. If you know what a bell curve is. It's this right here. This is a bell curve signifying the rise and fall. Down here would be the establishment of a civilization or its founding, its building phase and growth phase, the accumulation of wealth due to shared life resources and then reaching the pinnacle of progress and then typically what happens is then competition competition to sit on the top of progress and arguments of who is going to actually rule what's been attained and people stop building and now start 
competing in the sense of wanting to undo the other, and it leads to civilizational decline. And so this is the civilizational bell curve. You can read about that just about in any history book. Civilizations have been rising and falling since the beginning. Cain City no longer exists today. The culture of Cain no longer exists today. Also, the embrace of a founding of civilization incites a rapid season of growth through pooled efforts and resources creating moral and economic prosperity. This is the whole idea of the bell curve. Civilizations are jump-started when people seek to come together, do life, and build something together. But it leads to, this is the top of the bell curve, the excesses of civilizational prosperity always lead to covetousness and infighting and the rise of demagogues. Now, some of you may not know what the word demagogue means. It's used everywhere today. But the word demagogue is simply an agitator. It's someone who agitates the moment for personal gain. It's someone who comes in and sees division amongst peoples and exploits the division through, ab through agitation in order that they might personally gain from the divided culture. So that is what a demagogue is. So um, I want you to look at the scripture because our first demagogue in the scripture is right here in Genesis 3, Genesis 4. There's this guy named Lamech, okay? Lamech said to his wives, now he's the first man in scripture to have two wives. So this is interesting. Adam had one wife, all the other men had one wife. And then Lamech comes along and he says, hey, I'll take two. So he has two wives, Ada and Zillah. He says, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Let's stop here real quick because this will help us understand this principle. Here's what Lamech is saying. Lamech is saying, listen, there's this guy, he wounded me. Maybe it was he bumped into me during something or maybe he got frustrated and he reached out and he hit me in the shoulder or something. Well, Lamech killed him. It was an over-aggression. Lamech is acknowledging that he has murdered a man. But now what's interesting, if you remember the story of Cain and Abel, after Cain murdered Abel, God was very merciful to Cain. He did not kill Cain. He said, Cain, I'm going to place a mark on you so that everyone, anyone who finds you, they will know that you're under my protection and that if they harm you, that it will be bad for them, that I will multiply what I'm doing to you seven times on them. And now you have this guy Lamech saying presumptuously, well, Cain killed a guy. Well, I killed a guy too. And if sevenfold of a punishment for anyone who touches Cain... I'm just going to say it's going to be 77-fold if you touch me. It's this idea of presumption. This idea of this is the king of the hill model. This now, as this civilization, this first city has arisen, now we have this demagogue who's taking advantage of some sort of division and he's asserting himself at the top of the hill in order to take advantage of the moment. And then, of course, it leads to civilizational decline. Because if you read on in the story, 
by the time you get to Genesis 6, the seeds that Lamech and Cain planted with violence culminate in a world filled with hatred and violence and all of these things. And God ultimately sends a flood according to the Genesis story. And so here, the result of division creating through covetousness catalyzes civilizational decline. I want you to go back to our bell curve just for a second. The bell curve, again, the embrace of the founding of the civilization leads to rapid growth with shared prosperity, and then typically there becomes a competition for who's going to sit at the top of the hill civilizationally, which brings in division, and then it brings in demagogues, which brings in more divisions, which leads to civilizational decline. You can see this over and over again in history. Now, with that bell curve, let's go back to our king's list. The king's list. Keep in mind, the southern kingdom is the kingdom of the house of David. Each of these names, this David's name should be in green, by the way, and it may be, or maybe I just can't see it. But each of these green names, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah, each of these kings were good kings because they sought to bring the kingdom back to its founding. They were reformers. They were trying to pull back this decline and reconnect the kingdom to the principles of its founding in God. In fact, you can hear it in the opening lines what Josiah does. Listen, listen to what he does in verse number two. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, just 16 years old, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the, of the high places and the Asherim and the carved and metal images. So let's go back to our graph. What did the scripture just say? When Josiah was 16 years old, he sought to connect Israel back to its founding roots in the house of David. The way he was trying to reverse this bell curve, each of these reformers, the idea of reform, is trying to connect the kingdom back to the goodness of its founding. Now, we know that each of these men are complicated men. We know David is a complicated man. It's not trying to reconnect with their mistakes. It's trying to reconnect with what they did right, what made us a people, what made us a civilization. How do we reconnect there? That is the quest of Josiah, and he sought, it's, notice how carefully it's worded, he sought the God of his father, David. It is not just the seeking of God, but it's the seeking of what God did in establishing them as a nation. So if civilization is a people with a shared culture doing life together, and as we saw, all of them follow unfortunately, a bell curve. Now, put the bell curve up one more time. Typically, I don't have an illustration for this. The bell curve looks more like this. It goes up quickly and then has a long, drawn-out decline. It's not it's simply up and down as quick as you would think. 
You say, well, gosh, Brother Matt, this is real encouraging. Is just civilizational decline inevitable? This is not really encouraging. It's kind of like the guy who was 22 years old, and he went to the fortune teller, and he said, I'd like to know my future. And the fortune teller, oh, let me see, and I looked at his palm, and he said, the lady uh, said to him, said, ooh, well, I don't know if I should say this. And he said, well, go ahead out with it. He said, she said, okay, well, until your 35th year, you are going to be filled with depression, anxiety, poverty, and sickness until your 35th year. And the man said, gosh, that's terrible. Well, ha what happens in year 35? She said, honey, you just get used to it. Is civilizational decline inevitable? Well, let's talk about it. There are three great barriers to reversing civilizational decline. Why is it? If, if, if preventing civilizational decline, what Josiah did in reform, why is it that not every group does that if it's so easy? Well, there are three great barriers to reversing civilizational decline. Three ba great barriers to three great barriers to reversing this nature of the bell curve when it comes to kingdoms. Uh, the first is this, is an unwillingness to be honest about the injustice, the sins, and corruption of previous generations. Now, this is a complicated one when you look in the story because you all know the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the earth. We are commanded from Scripture to honor our parents. The, the, uh, the book of the law, the Torah actually says that when someone with a gray head walks in the room, you are to rise up and honor them. The Bible talks in the Proverbs as gray hair as being the crown that life gives the elderly. The Bible does not disparage older generations. And the Bible also does not disparage previous generations, which is a huge difference in our day. Because it is very fashionable to dismiss older people today. It's very fashionable to speak about how evil bygone generations are and to point out nothing but their failures and then feel good about ourselves that at least we don't do what they did and look how bad they were. How do we merge these things together? The Bible tells us to honor our parents and to honor previous generations. I think we observe it. And the way we overcome this barrier is what Josiah did. Josiah tore down the things that his ancestors built that should not have been built. But he honored the God of his father David. Friends, it is not an honoring thing when you look at previous generations and preserve what never should have been built in the first place. There, every generation has generational sins. My generation has it. Your generation has it. The generation after us will have it. The generation before them will have it. Or the generation after them and the generation before our parents' generation. We all have generational sins. Yes, we want to honor our parents. We want to honor previous generations. 
but it's not honor to preserve their wrongs and their injustices. That is not honorable. And this is what Josiah does. He honors the God of his father David, but he tears down the idols. He tears down all of these religious facts, uh, fact, uh, religious things that were built that led Israel into idolatry because those things in Josiah's mind did not need to be left and remembered because they should go. So an unwillingness to be honest about the injustices and the sins and the corruption of previous generations prevents civilizational decline from stopping. Because if you cannot seek to correct yesterday's wrongs, how in the world are you going to seek to fix today's and tomorrow's? Next is an unwillingness to be honest about injustices, sins, and corruption in the present generation. We all know this, that it's easier to see the speck in your neighbor's eye than the log in your own. It's always easier to see the speck in previous generations or future generations and ignore the log in your own. We all know this. And this is something that's very difficult. Josiah not only was willing to confront the wrongs and the sins of the previous generation, he confronted the wrongs and the sins of his current generation. He tore down the idols that his people, his household was engaged in. And then third, that an apathy toward instilling justice and righteousness in the generations to come. Now, I want us to go back to our king's list here for a second. Because when I read the story of Josiah, I observe that he does these first things. He honors previous generations by honoring his father, David. But he also honors God by dealing with the sins and the injustices of the previous generation. But not only does he do that, he confronts the current generation. He confronts his own generation. And he confronts the sins of that moment. But the reason the civilizational decline did not happen is because of these four red names right here. It's the third barrier. It's the third barrier, which is this. An apathy towards instilling, just, instilling justice and righteousness in the generations to come. Josiah dealt with yesterday, and he dealt with his today but he did not deal with his tomorrow. And because of that, it was one of the barriers that was left intact and the civilizational decline continued and all we had in Josiah's reign was a blip on the radar, so to speak, a bright spot in the history of Israel where they got right with God and started worshiping God and following Him instead of worshiping idols and abusing each other they got right with God, and then it stopped because Josiah, for whatever reason, did not instill his convictions or whatever it is. Maybe his children didn't want to hear it. Whatever reason, there was a breakdown there with the third barrier. Now, let me, let me point out one thing here. I want to read this next point, and then I want to say one more thing about this. The answer to all three barriers is one word. The answer to all three barriers is one word, and it's humility. The answer to all three barriers is one word, and it's humility. Josiah humbled himself before God. Because it's easy to be arrogant and correct a different generation. 
Josiah did this not from arrogance. Josiah did this not from, well, we're going to be the greatest generation here and we have all the answers and y'all just need to step aside. Josiah didn't do that. Josiah humbled himself. Now, I want you to think of these three barriers again. An unwillingness to confront yesterday, an unwillingness to confront today, and an unwillingness to instill justice and righteousness for tomorrow. Each of us tends to um, find ourselves in one camp, meaning we hold greatly the good things of yesterday, or we place much confidence in the progress of today, or we have great hope in advancement of tomorrow. And typically, depending on what camp you're in, and it's not, it's not exclusive because you may be a senior adult, but you don't put much hope in older uh, in returning to yesterday. You put more hope into the advancement of tomorrow. It may be that you are a young person, a teenager, but you put much hope in anchoring in and uh, connecting with the, the, the triumphs of yesterday. We all tend to be anchored into one of these things. And the temptation is to ignore the injustices in yours and point out the injustices in all of the others. And this is what we see all the time in our culture right now. It is one group looking at the other one and saying, you're wrong and you need to change. That was wrong and you need to change. That's not what Josiah did. Josiah, in a word, humility says, it not only looks at the wrong out there, humility begins with the wrong right here. The lack of humility is always the greatest obstacle to preventing, uh, of the greatest obstacle for preventing civilizational decline. Solomon said it best, we must humble ourselves before God. Second Chronicles 7, 13 through 15. You know these passages, you know these verses. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will, here it is, humble themselves. Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this Place, speaking about the temple there. Notice, not if my people will point out the injustices and the wrongs of their neighbor. Not if my people will point out the injustices and the wrongs of their parents or the injustices and the wrongs of their children. But if my people will humble themselves. It's not to say we cannot speak to culture and say that's wrong. No, we need to be the salt of the earth. But it always has to start here first. It is always easier to see everybody else's fault and wrong and ignore the one that is right here. And knowing the barriers to civilizational reverse, the barriers preventing uh, the reverse of civilizational decline, these things, if we 
acknowledge these things beginning in our own life, we can see what happened in Josiah's life that yes, decline can be reversed. What does this mean? Well, three quick things. We must humbly hold our heritage. We must humbly hold our heritage. I I don't think it's a good thing as a rule to hate your heritage. I think you should love your heritage. I think Habakkuk, as we saw last week, loved his heritage, but hold it honestly and humbly. We don't have to defend the wrongs of yesterday. You call them wrong. We don't have to defend the wrongs of today. You call them wrong. And by the way, as people of Christ, as citizens of His kingdom, this is who we are connected to. You know how politics works in America. If you're a Republican, it's easy to point out the injustices and the wrongs of Democrats. If you're a Democrat, it's easy to point out the injustices and the wrongs of Republicans. And it's easy to explain away injustices and wrongs committed by somebody in your party because they're on your team. And it's easy to look over there, wherever over there is, and say, hey, over there, you're wrong because of what you're doing. I can't believe you're doing that. All the while ignoring what was taking place here in our own party. Uh, I hate mentioning names, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it already. Um, and by the way, I, love, I literally love every American. I'm not trying to be wishy-washy or butterflies and unicorns. I just really love our nation. But I was, I was reading this article a couple years ago about uh, the late 90s, the, the scandal between um, President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and uh, the special prosecutor that was formed, Kenneth Starr, that, to prosecute him. And I was reading this article and Kenneth Starr is a Christian he loves the Lord, but at the same time, Kenneth Starr was prosecuting Bill Clinton for an affair. Kenneth Starr was in the middle of an affair. Like, now that's history. Now, I don't hate Kenneth Starr. I don't hate Bill Clinton, but I'm saying, folks, I'm using a historical example. I'm saying this is the problem, is seeing it all out there and not being able to see it right here. That is the problem. And you could say that about a Republican to a Democrat. There, if you need sources or stories, there's thousands of them. And I'm sure it's more complicated and I don't fully understand it. All right? So I'm not sp- trying to speak ill. But we must humbly hold our heritage. Also, we must humbly walk among our neighbors. Humbly walk among our neighbors. And also, finally, we must humbly train our children. I really do believe that some of the best days are ahead for America because I believe that God is gracious and I believe that God is doing a work amongst his people. I really do. But at the same time, last week I shared with you all of the concerns that I have that I know you have too. Ultimately, I have a word for you. Should Jesus tarry? Ultimately, at some point in the future, and may it be hundreds if not thousands of years from now, if should Jesus tarry, America will not be as it is right now. There is no nation on earth 
that has survived for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years without a redefinition of who they are. It's just the way of history. Which brings me to my final point. Jesus says in John 2, 42, that he did not entrust himself to any man because he knew what was in man. This is why it's a bad thing to entrust yourself to a man or a party or something like that because Jesus knows what's in man. We should know what's in man. It's the same thing as man and woman today. It's just sin and we're just all dust at the end of the day. But I love Hebrews 11 and it gives me such hope. While I believe good days are in store for America, even if they're not, as a Christian, folks, we're not home here in America. We're headed home. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse number 8 through 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age she considered him faithful who had promised. Friends, we're not home. We're headed home. I believe that we can reverse this bell curve. I believe that we should humble ourselves before God. But at the end of the day, friends, we're all made of dust. Even the best among us is going to have catastrophic failure from time to time. But we are headed home. You place your confidence not in the cities of this world, but in the city in the heavens, which is incorruptible, and you cannot stop it from coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. And Lord, I want as a means in this moment to encourage each of us, beginning with me, to humble ourselves before you. It's so easy to see the wrongs and injustices everywhere else and not look right here at home. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts right here in this moment? Lord, any confrontation that needs to take place, would you be that voice to our heart today to say, look, this going on in your life and in your home, you can't be angry about the decline out there if you're unwilling to de confront the decline in here. Lord, you are so gracious. You are so merciful. All it takes is the confession of sin, acknowledging it, giving it to you, and you forgive, you restore, you heal. And Lord, you are so patient in letting us have time to get right with you. Lord, help us not to squander your kindness as Americans. Help us not to squander your kindness as your people. That your willingness to withhold judgment and wait is that we might turn to you. Lord, we thank you for your tender voice that's always calling us home. It's in Christ's name.
Amen.